The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Terry Kurgan is a visual artist whose recent book, Everyone is Present, written while she was a writing fellow at Wiser, won the 2019 Sunday Times Ellen Payton Award. In this podcast, she considers two photographs, each found in her father's possession and both taken on the edges of graves, as portals into a new book project that she has just begun. I've just begun working on a new book project that will largely, but not entirely, circulate around a collection of 1948 Arab-Israeli war photographs that were taken by my father. I tend to work across media in a largely process-orientated way. And here too, I don't have my project structure clearly mapped out ahead of time. I don't have a plot or themes or a sense of the book's form. Working in this way means that I have to begin with a starting point and a more or less sense of direction, but I'm working from an uncomfortable place of self-doubt and uncertainty, hoping to find coherence and an understanding of what I'm working about and towards as I go along. I think it's a little bit like the process of psychoanalysis and trying to find one's way through to the subconscious. You can only get there by talking about what is directly in front of you and, at a certain point, allowing the work itself to make or to reveal its subject. I don't find this working methodology easy and I often wish I worked in a different and more certain way with mind maps and diagrams and notes a much more soothing form of planning. I love to read writers on the work of writing and in Why I Write, an essay by Joan Didion that she first published in 1976, amongst other things, she says, had I been blessed with even limited access to my own mind, there would have been no reason to write. I write entirely to find out what I'm thinking, what I'm looking at, what I see and what it means. Well, this resonates and beautifully sums up my own approach to my new book project. So to give you a sense, let me start, as I do, by skirting around the periphery. I have a sense that to begin with, I have to start with my father and a short and incomplete piece I wrote some years ago when I first began to think about working with these war photographs. It's provisionally and probably much too dramatically titled Blood. My father was 65 years old when his heart exploded in the air between Amsterdam and Nairobi. He was on his way from his disintegrating life in Los Angeles, where his business was failing and my mother had just divorced him, to visit me in Cape Town, a city he'd left some 10 years prior, but that he still longed for and considered to be his true home. I found him 18 hours later in the intensive care unit of the Nairobi hospital, looking ash-grey, reduced, wired up and humiliated by all of this and the fact that he had just lost control of his bowels. Averting any sort of emotional expression on my part, he ordered me straight back out onto the street to buy him a pair of clean underpants while the poker-faced nurse drew the curtains around his bed and then directed me to the closest men's clothing store. The task felt awkward, 
I mulled over the range of styles, fabric and colour combinations and I bought him the packet of three black 100% cotton wire fronts, size large. He's all cleaned up and calmer now and I sit at the window alongside the bed holding his hand as the unfamiliar Nairobi sky grows thick and pink with dusk. The blue lights of his monitor flutter and beep. He looks very tired. What happened, Dad? I ask him. He answers me in a small voice. All I remember is that I was sitting on the plane drinking a double whiskey and the young woman next to me was emptying the contents of her handbag onto the pull-out tray table in front of her. She sorted her makeup, her wallet, her documents and then her medication. I remember wondering why there were so many pills. Four separate piles, it was all very neat. I was writing in my notebook and I worried that she would bump her table and all of these things would fly off and roll under the seats and that I might have to help her. I noticed that I'd broken into a cold sweat and then the most unbearable pain knocked me out. The cardiologist walked in just then and after examining him and checking his charts told me how narrow the margin had been. This was the third heart attack that my father had survived. I kissed him goodnight, missing him in a visceral sort of way, even as he held me close. I waved goodbye as I turned left into the long corridor from the end of the ward, but his blanket was drawn up to cover his mouth and his eyes were already tightly closed. Upon the advice of a doctor on board, he'd been emergency landed. The airplane had not been scheduled to stop in Nairobi. And the next morning I went to retrieve his luggage from the office at the airport, where in the Russian urgency it had been offloaded and stored. His carry-on bag, which if my father had packed it would have been very ordered and tidy, must have been scrambled back together in haste by an airline attendant. I found the covered notebook he'd been writing in bent back upon itself and wedged in between his unzipped travel wallet, his cosmetics bag, and a sad change of clothes. I opened it to find, tucked into the cover sleeve, his boarding pass, a photograph of himself and my mother in the first year of their marriage, and an open envelope addressed to Migdal Tepperson, an old friend of his in Israel. Within that envelope was another smaller envelope labelled H. Kurgan, my war, notes and photographs. Later that day, I asked my father about these envelopes and told him that I was curious. He said that he'd been asked to contribute towards a book that was being compiled by some of his former comrades, documenting the story of South African volunteers in the 1948 war. He encouraged me to look at the contents. There was a short cover note. Dear Henry, I'm not much of a writer, but here are some of my notes and recollections. I must apologize for my sketchy account of certain things, but 40 years is a long time and my memory needs some props. I've enclosed some photographs. You'll probably recognize everybody in them and are welcome to use them in the book. Warmest regards, Hyman Kurgan. My father's phlegmatic account in his uniform and tidy cursive handwriting covered ten sheets of faint ruled writing paper and, amongst the handful of photographs, 
largely group shots of men in Israeli Defense Force uniform performing their camaraderie and affiliation in front of his camera, I found this one. Seven men in two rows. The back row of four men are standing and the front row of three men are crouching on their haunches. It looks hot and dry and they're in a field or the desert. Each of them is holding a pick or a shovel. But, at odds with everything else about this photograph and its affect, the soldier at the front centre of the photograph is rather shockingly holding up, trophy-like, a human skull. I'll come back to this. In May 2016, my father died in the intensive care unit of a hospital in Los Angeles. He was 93 years old and had been anticipating and preparing for his own sudden death and doing everything in his power to ward it off for more than half the years of his long life. He was terrified. He often recounted the deals he made every five years with a God I'm absolutely certain he didn't believe in. And he specialized in what he called cemetery humor. I tell you, the most terrible jokes about death and dying. At the age of 23, he was one of 800 soldiers in a unit of largely Jewish South Africans who volunteered to fight in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, which many Jews and Israelis call the War of Independence and which Palestinians describe as the Nakba. In Arabic, those words, al-Nakba, mean the catastrophe. Many of the men and women in his group, like himself, had come to South Africa from Eastern Europe as young children. They were fleeing the pogroms and the racism of the interwar years. By 1945, they'd fully discovered that their families had been murdered and the extent to which their past homes and former communities had been destroyed. While my father's recounting of the impetus to volunteer and his experiences during the 1948 to 1949 year reveals it to have been one of the most meaningful and fulfilling years of his life, it is, for me, one of the enigmas of my father's personal history. It just doesn't make sense in terms of the values and morality that govern the rest of his life. But this is not something he would even remotely have agreed with me about. His brave act, offering to risk his own young life to create a safe place that might protect Jewish people, meant that he became an agent of violence and destruction against another people, who for decades now have been engaged in a resistance of their own. I think for him and many of his cohort in this volunteer army, the war against the Arabs was an extension of the war against the Nazis. Many of his fellow soldiers were concentration camp survivors and had made their way to Palestine via various DP camps in Europe. They were filled to the brink with post-extermination existential anxiety and like so many others then and still today, would never acknowledge the forced migration of Arabs from Palestine, but only the miracle of the foundation of the State of Israel. My father, who had very little interest in objects or photographs with their roots in the past, was nonetheless immensely attached to a maroon leather album that contained about 150 very small black and white photographs documenting the war and that year in his life. They were neatly attached to the page with photo corners, and luckily for me, each photograph is briefly captioned on the back. 
I want to look at research and write about these photographs and some others that I found amongst his personal effects when I packed up his home office after his death. I want to reel backwards through time and through the darkest period of mid-20th century European and Middle Eastern history, using my father's war and family photographs as both portal and evidence. When I think about my work ahead, I know it will involve, on the one hand, trying to understand the entangled histories, trauma and injuries resulting from the catastrophic impact of both the Holocaust and the Nakba. On the other, it will involve trying to come to terms with a complicated and enigmatic man and the tension between the machinations of history, which is beyond one's control, and an individual's moral choice. But for now, I need to find a starting point. I'm both attracted to and repelled by beginning in what is probably the most difficult, taboo and controversial place, by looking at and thinking about two historically intimate but very different photographs. They're inextricably linked by more than the acts of violence that they signify, and of significance to begin with is that they were both shot in 1948. The first photograph is of a group of about 14 adults and two young children gathered at the site of a lime-covered, partially opened mass grave in the Pajusta Forest, which is about eight kilometers east of the city of Panavesh in Lithuania. This is the city where my father was born in 1924 and where generations of his extended family had lived until Saturday the 23rd of August 1941. On that day, the Germans and their Lithuanian collaborators killed 8,837 people, 99% of whom were Jews, comprising at that time a third of Panavesha's population. The group of people assembled here in this photograph represent the small number of survivors and they appear to be in the process of arranging themselves for a group photograph because not all of them are yet looking directly at the photographer. They're largely very solemn and some of them are staring directly into the gaping hole that has been dug into the earth in front of them. The photograph might be seen to be about the witnessing of death, the witnessing of genocide, but it also engages, it seems to me, with ideas about mortality and what it is to be alive. According to my father's sister, the man on the right with his hands visible at his sides is their only surviving relative, and it was him who sent this photograph to my grandparents in Cape Town. As someone born after this event, I'm transgenerationally haunted by this photograph and its implications. But also, what I can see in this photograph is relatively little in relation to everything that I know about it, which is by contrast with photograph number two, the photograph that I first came across in my father's bag in Nairobi, where everything I see is much more than I know. To my enormous regret, we never discussed the photograph at the time. There was just too much else going on with my father's fragile state of health. And so the photo is almost all the evidence that I have to go on now. Looking at it again, a hollowed head more than any other bodily remnant symbolizes death's totality, 
But there's nothing else about this photograph that makes me think that this group of men are contemplating life's transience or their own mortality. The group holding the skull is shaped by a very particular institutional gaze, that of the army. The pose is contrived and theatrical, and its fascination resides in large part in its mystery and inscrutability, in all that is concealed by all that it reveals. The photographer is my father, so he too has something to do with their look, with their gaze. The photo is captioned En Albeda, but nothing more than that. Google tells me that En Albeda is today a Palestinian village in the Tubas Governorate in the north, east and west bank. In 2020, it has a population of 1,050 people. Bones and human remains, just like photographs, are indexical, physical objects that point towards life that was. They're about life and death and presence and absence. I need to give more thought to that relationship and to the fact that these images remind me of the re-emergence of racism and fascism in the world. I think the problem of attempting to read these two photographs in relation to each other is emblematic of the difficult questions my book project will explore as a whole. And juxtaposing them like this is risky. I'm aware from the outset that I'm entering into a minefield, territory that is fraught and complex and contains positions about the Middle East conflict to which or in which there is barely any scope for dialogue or representation. But I'm coming to this as a visual artist and my objectives are also quite personal. I want to try and unravel something about that time in the world and something about this man, my father. I also want to understand something about the thorny relationship between the Holocaust and the Nakba, which are incomparable events that collide in one place and are the foundational traumatic pasts in the national narrative of Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. Human remains and photographs ask for interpreters. Stories must be told about them. And that's the place where I would like to come in.